Today I want to tell you why I am certain that the Old Testament is an incomplete story. You just have to go to the very last words. It's the prophet Malachi. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the coming back into the promised land, the restoration of the altar and the temple. All of it had been promised by prophets. And as we learned last week, that was a critical part of Christ coming, as Paul taught us, in the fullness of time. After centuries of struggle and failure, we see four centuries of faithfulness to the practices around the temple and the law. But one other thing that had been prophesied was the return of a king, and that had not been met yet. Malachi speaks as a prophet encouraging the people of God to finish. They're in transition. It hasn't quite been solidified yet. That final event of national renewal and revival that we studied two weeks ago had yet to take place. Malachi was one of the voices that God used to move them to that point. But he also is one of those who repeats that the promises are not done. A king will come, but before the king, a forerunner. And so we come to these final words of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. It is these very words that Luke quotes in the passage read for us at the beginning of the service. So today what we are looking at is the breaking of the long silence. We learned last week he never stopped being at work. But God has those seasons, sometimes centuries long, where we don't know what God's doing. We don't quite understand. We don't see it. But God's at work. And in the fullness of time for his plan, he comes public again. This is that moment. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. It's the longest New Testament book. Luke writes as a faithful follower of Christ, a Greek-educated Gentile who had come to faith, traveled with Paul. He was an eyewitness to the events of the early church, a beautiful writer. His purpose of writing the gospel, in fact, why don't we just read his words? Verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he, he has researched, he has talked to eyewitnesses, he has conferred with the other gospel writers, part of Christ's posse, his entourage, they were disciples. So now what he comes up with is a fuller, a more complete telling, pieced it together as only a a historian could. About half of the content in the Gospel of Luke is unique to it. What we're reading now is a part of that. So that we, like the person who was the, the target of his initial writing, Theophilus, a new believer in Christ, like him, we could be certain of what we believe. And these first chapters are designed to help us understand the link between all that had happened in the Old Testament and the time in which Christ came. It's the breaking of the long silence. Let me just give a little bit of the background. If you were looking for a couple to give birth to, the forerunner, the new Elijah, 
It would not be Zachariah and Elizabeth. They were not significant in man's eyes. And we see this pointed out by Luke. When he says they are from the priestly order of Abijah, he's making a point. They're they're from the sticks. This is a small town pastor and his wife. Hicks from the sticks. If you were thinking, where are the movers and shakers in the spiritual world? It would not be from the region Zechariah came from. There were no mega synagogues in that region. He was not an up-and-coming priest. And they were barren. In this culture, that's more than a sad thing. That is a tragedy because it is widely believed that if you're without children, that means God is withholding his blessing and that you're under God's judgment. We all know people, some in this room, have not been able to have children. You could imagine what it's like to be Zachariah and Elizabeth, but imagine now, besides just the sadness of that, the spiritual judgment, not just the comments of, just relax, go on a vacation. Have you thought of adoption? But add to that, is there unconfessed sin in your life? Luke also makes clear that not only are they barren, but they're old, past their prime. They've gone from praying to have children to disappointment and anger to resignation. But being old is more than about their barrenness. It means that Zechariah is not one that people would look to. He's not in his prime of ministry. He's not in the strength of his years. And he's certainly not one of the up and coming. He's waning. These are not two people that we would choose, that the nation of Israel, if they were doing a large search to find the perfect home from which the new Elijah would come as the forerunner to the Messiah, they would not be it. And this brings up one of four ideas that I want to share with you that come out of this story in relation to how God works in our lives. And the first is that man's idea of significance and God's are quite different. Even in the church today, the ones that we look to, if God's going to show up, he's going to show up in California at some mega church, or he's going to show up at some higher institution of theological learning. No, God goes where he wills. And when God chooses significance, he looks in a different place. He looks at the heart. And the thing that we see that sets Zechariah and Elizabeth apart is found in verse 6. Both of them were upright in the sight of God observing the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. The real important phrase here is in the sight of God. In fact, if you go forward into verse 14 and circle again there in the eyes or in the sight of the Lord, you can see that that's part of the legacy that Zechariah and Elizabeth have to pass on to John is that very integrity. He will also have that spiritual integrity that He gets from his parents. And you know what? That makes them the ideal candidates. The word blameless does not mean sinless. Paul uses that same phrase to describe his own actions uh, as he looks back at his life as a Pharisee with regard to the Pharisaical laws of the day. People couldn't look at them and find fault in how they lived. And in a sense, we are to aspire to that. Not because it earns us a right relationship with God, but when a heart is right with God, it reflected in our lives. How we live doesn't earn relationship with God, but a true relationship with God is reflected in how you live. By their fruit, you'll know them. This is 
Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now let's set the stage for what takes place. There were probably about 20,000 priests functioning in the nation of Israel in this time. Not all went to Jerusalem to serve at the temple on any given cycle. And so first of all, we see that Zechariah is among those chosen to go. Twice a day, one priest had the privilege of going into the holy place and burning incense on that altar that stood right in front of the veil, as close as it could get, on the other side of which was the Holy of Holies, which we've talked about an awful lot. We know what's there. The presence of God himself, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the place both longed for and feared by the Jewish people. Now, here's the thing. There were so many priests in that day, there was not a guarantee that you would ever have a turn to go and do that. It was one of the most sacred privileges. The incense that was burnt and sent up represented the very prayers of the people of God going up to the throne of God. What you're doing in that moment is as important a work as you will ever do as a priest. So when the lot fell your way, you were blessed. And once that happened, you were out of the lottery. So this only happened once in your life, and only maybe. But in God's timing, in the fullness of time, the lot falls to Zechariah. And that leads me to idea number two in terms of how God works his ways in our life. The first is that man's idea of significance and God's are very different things. But the second is that God puts you where he needs you to be for his purposes. Think about how God worked so specifically. And it's interesting because last week we talked about how the same God was at work in the grand scheme of things, moving all sorts of people, moving kings, nations away in order to work his will. But now we see he works so specifically in individual lives. God puts us where he needs us to be for his purposes. We struggle so much understanding God's sovereign will in the context of our free will. That's one of those big debates and discussions. What we've learned by going through the Old Testament is that God's sovereign will is mostly regarding a plan that spans generations and centuries. God works on the grand scale, and his great purposes are going to be accomplished in spite of any of man's choices and all of mankind's choices. But when does God's sovereign will get mixed into our free will? Because obviously, we choose. We're given the privilege to choose. And with that privilege comes the responsibility of what that choice gives you. You can't say, God, give me the freedom to choose, and then when those choices lead to disaster, say, God, what are you doing? God says, no, in King James, not meeth, you with I gave you the choice. You can't have it both ways. But there are times that God gets involved in the details of our life in such a way that very specific things put us in very specific places. And those times are very important. And you might say, how do I make sure I'm not out of the place I need to be? But you see, that's the point. Don't worry about it. It's not your job. It's God's job 
when where we need to be to fit into his sovereign will has to take place, God orchestrates those things. We don't see them until we look back. What was Zachariah's job? To set the stage, to manipulate the lottery, to, you know, work things out so that uh, somehow he was there? He had no knowledge of any of that. What was his job? To be upright and blameless. That was his part. That's all you have to worry about. When you say to yourself, how do I know that I'm not going to miss out on God's big plan? If God wants you to be someplace, and it's his sovereign will for you, and it impacts his great plan for all of history, you're not going to change that. Your job is to follow his revealed will for you. Your job is to live upright, to pursue God, to be ready when he speaks. Zachariah is almost ready. He's ready spiritually, but he's not quite ready for the encounter. Imagine Zechariah preparing to go into that place. I picture both joy and fear all intermingled. Joy that he's fulfilling a lifelong dream, a lifelong wish, that he gets to do this. Every priest longed to have this opportunity, but fear at the same time because this was something that God didn't take lightly. The sons of Aaron were killed performing this exact rite but doing it wrongly. Everybody knew that. So I imagine a mixture of awe and delight, joy and fear. This happened twice a day in the morning and in the afternoon. We don't know which of those Zechariah did. At least I, I have no recollection if the text says that. If it does, you can correct me later, as some of you do such a great job at. We grow together. The day comes, a crowd assembles around him. As Zechariah goes in, that crowd gets on their faces before God in prayer. And what did Israel pray? Well, we know what Israel prayed in these moments. They prayed for God's mercy, for his presence. They remembered God's blessing and providential work, their failure as a nation. They remembered God's prophecy, the longing for a Messiah, for God to finish what was left undone for centuries. And he goes in. First thing to his left is the lampstand, the only thing lighting that semi-dark room. To his right, table of showbread. And then directly in front of him, the veil and the altar. And he goes in and quietly, silently performs his tasks. But then Suddenly, he's not alone any longer. We don't know how Gabriel shows up. Could it have been a flash of light? Or was he just suddenly there? I don't know. But he was there, and he was not silent. Let's just look quickly at what it is that Gabriel says. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or, or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will be bring back to the Lord their God. And this is where they, they quote uh, Malachi. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people 
prepared for the Lord. Four things that Gabriel says to Zechariah. The first is, don't be afraid. (laughs) That's the common first statement of every angel in this whole dialogue. Does to Zechariah. Angel shows up to Mary, says, don't be afraid. Right? Appears to the shepherds. What's the first thing he says? Don't be afraid. Why? It's been centuries. This doesn't happen in the norm. It's a terrifying thing. Hearing the stories of God's presence and God being at work, you know how that's most attractive? From a distance of a thousand miles or a hundred years. That's when the work of God is the most attractive to us. When God shows up right in your space, that's not very comfortable. When God really shows up, our doubts, our fears that have existed all along commingled with our faith. They, they come front and center, right? And we realize, wow, this is more real. This is more real than I even believed it was real, even though I believed it was real. Do not be afraid. And then he says, your prayer has been answered. You know, a lot of people go to the emotional side of the story, that Zechariah was still praying for a child. But we don't really know that. Zechariah had very specific prayers that were part of that, of that role that he was to play, among which was the prayer for the coming of a Savior. So we don't really know exactly what the angel's referring to when he says your prayer has been answered, except that he seems to address Two issues, and those are the third and fourth things. The first is don't be afraid. The second is fear not. The third thing is you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. He's going to be a great delight to you. And the fourth thing is he's going to be a great delight to a lot of people because he's going to be the forerunner. He's going to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. That's, that's the really big news. Of course that is, right? Now, I just want to point out a third idea here just real quick before we move on, and that is God's miraculous work in your personal circumstances is always part of a bigger plan. Let me explain what I mean by that. Here you have the angel Gabriel coming down. He's going to bless Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's going to bless them with a the child, Right? Now, there's no way that that somehow is a promise to every childless person. There are a lot of people that are very faithful to the Lord, and God chooses to bless them in other ways in their lives than having children. So there's no innate promise here. But it does give us a glimpse of when God acts miraculously in our life, why he does it. You see, we tend to think, That when God intervenes and does something miraculous for you that's exceptional, it's not what most people experience, we tend to take it as a personal thing. This is God blessing me as though our whole life is lived out in this little bubble and God's our personal little promise keeper. But that's not how God works. God always blesses us individually Because he's got something that's related to his bigger purposes. He blesses us always in order to bless others. All of us are going to go through life with wishes and hopes that don't get fulfilled. All of us are going to. All of us are going to have seasons where God, when he chooses, 
blesses us in a way that is clearly his doing as well. The seasons when God doesn't work does not mean his favor and his grace is not with us. And the seasons when God does work does not mean you deserve it more in that moment. God is giving you an opportunity to be a part of something bigger than your your life, your priorities. God does miraculous things in our life because through those things, he's going to enact something greater. That's really what we see in this story, isn't it? God blesses Zachariah and Elizabeth with a child, but only because that child has an important plan in the works and plans of God. Now, let's look at Zechariah's response real quick. Uh, verse 18, he's, he struggles with doubt. He says, how is this going to be? This is where a lot of us who know this story tend to focus is the doubt, and, and Gabriel speaks quite firmly to him. Like, I have to say this? I have to tell you who I am? I'm Gabriel. I stand before the throne of God. When I speak, I speak for God. Yeah, okay. But how do I know this is going to happen? How do, I know, how do I know they didn't put something in the incense, you know? <laughs> and so, he's unable to speak. And he, he's unable to speak until John is born, and he affirms the name John is to be given. That's a phenomenal thing. Because what was supposed to happen when he came out was that the priest was to pronounce a blessing. And the idea was while he was inside the holy place, he would get a, a message from God, come out and speak something significant, a blessing over the people that were there. And instead, he wasn't able to speak at all. And when he finally was able to speak, we see his words. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. These are the first words he speaks after nine months of silence. I'm wondering if Elizabeth liked that or didn't. Who knows? (laughs) I want you to note the themes of his words. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath we swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he turns to John, turns to his baby, and he blesses him with this. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. This chapter ends, verse 80, the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly in Israel. Now, we've skipped some pieces here. Next week, we're going to look at two women who worshiped Christ, Elizabeth and Mary. It's a beautiful moment. It's one of the most precious in our Advent season. We're going to look at that, and so we skipped that section. But I do want to point out a couple of things. Luke writes 
in a way that an artist appreciates. He's the only one that includes these beautiful hymns, these beautiful declarations of praise, among which is this song of Zechariah. And we're going to see some others as we go through this. It's a precious gift to us. But it's the theme of the song that brings us to the fourth idea I want to share with you today. In what happened to Zechariah, we see this phenomenal thing that God is enacting this global plan, the plan of the ages. The forerunner is being conceived. In a a very short time, a virgin will be with child, and the Christ will come within a year. All that history has been longing for is about to come to fruition. God is working in a cosmic scale, and yet in the midst of that, he has time to chastise (laughs) and to conform one man to his purposes. In the midst of all of this, he still loves Zechariah enough to discipline him. Those the Lord loves, he chastens. He doesn't discipline him out of anger. He disciplines him to form him. See, when God works in our life, sometimes he will bring what we think of as judgment. It's not. It's discipline. It's shaping His goal is your wholeness, not your harm. Harm may come in the short term, but growth comes at the end. And that's what we see here. In some ways, I want to sympathize with Zechariah. I I doubt I would have had any more faith. 400 silent years. I'm old. Elizabeth's old. You're going to awaken an old womb and awaken an old man. We're going to get pregnant, and he's going to be the forerunner, and I'm going to see the Messiah maybe in my lifetime. And God hasn't spoken for four centuries. Oh, man. And me, of all people that you're talking to, I I think I might have had that same doubt. So when God chastens and disciplines Zechariah, I take that to heart. I take that as mine. And when he finally opens his mouth, what do you learn? He learned his lesson. Because he focuses not on his personal life, the personal work of God, the little bubble that we're always focusing on. God, bless my life, bless my plans, bless my wallet, bless my relationships. It's about me and you, God, but me first. We want to make Christianity work for us. We invite Jesus into our life. That's not it. The Christian life is us entering into God's life and God's cosmic plan and finding fulfillment on a life that is so much bigger than our little space and our little plans. We're so focused on here and we're so mad at God when everything in this little life of ours doesn't fit together. And God says, just broaden your vision. Look at what I'm doing. This does give us the opportunity to just talk about what the cure is for our seasons of doubt. And that's the fourth idea. We overcome doubt by focusing on the bigger picture that God's doing. By stepping back from whatever circumstance is a cause for us to either be angry or confused or some bold thing that God's asking us to do that our own resources don't seem up to in any way at all and we're likely to doubt or lose faith, just Step back. Gain the big picture. Look at what God has done. Look at what he promises to do. And look at where we are in the midst of that. 
And that's where we have the faith to move forward. See, when you insist that everything makes sense right here, no wonder your life is riddled with doubt. And no wonder you don't achieve and experience the life God has for us. The fullness of time. And in order to get to the fullness of time, God moves kingdoms and he moves individual hearts and lives. He does that. And that's our theme. When the fullness of time, when everything was set, God sent his son, born of a woman under the law in order to redeem. These first characters in the New Testament show us one of the recurring themes in the way God works. And we've seen it through the Old Testament. We see it confirmed here. God doesn't choose the priest with the biggest pulpit of his day (laughs) and the best resources and from the prime locations. He doesn't choose those that man finds great. He chooses those often intentionally to confound the world. He chooses what we call the foolish things or the weak things. In fact, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Say this with me. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Of course, they're not foolish, and they're not weak, except by man's estimation. But by God's estimation, they're the very things that he uses. Just think about this. He uses an old man and a woman, dried up womb, to give birth to the forerunner. Then he chooses a virgin who had not only never known a man but had never been a mother to be the mother of God. Then he chooses the shepherds who would not be trusted in any court of law in their day to be the first witnesses of the Christ child. And then finally, he allows magi, astronomers, foreigners, apart from the people of God to be the first worshipers. (laughs) He comes to us in our brokenness. If you're going to experience Christ and who he wants to be in your life, you can't aspire to something that he's worthy of because he doesn't come to those areas in your life. What he wants to come to is what's broken in you. He brings his grace, and he brings his power, and he brings his healing. And just like he did then, he still does that today. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, even as you came, we ask you to come to our brokenness and our insignificance, to the places of weakness that the world sees as foolish. We invite you to come to those very areas in our life that are known perhaps only to you, Come and transform us and bring us grace through your son, Jesus. Come afresh. Come afresh into our spirits in this season. In Jesus' name, amen.